0: you please open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 22. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you. This is your word. We come to sit humbly underneath it. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would change us, that you would use this to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. I have to tell you that I have talked to several of my friends who are preaching through Mark uh, at the same time that I am, and all of them went past this passage. And as I started to dig into this thing, I thought, I know why. Um, this is this is a really this is a really uh, this is a weighty thing we're talking about. It's not so much that it's it's difficult necessarily to understand. That's not the, it's it's how to look at it. Um, I think in some ways, like a ser- in a sermon, um, to look at it sermonically. But we are going to look at this this morning, and hopefully, we we have this done in a way that will help us to really see. How Jesus is still dealing with the issues he's been dealing with as we've looked the last several times together, as we, we're seeing how the kingdom is coming and advancing into this present age and how the people of the world are dealing with it, how the Pharisees, how, how the general public is, is hearing it and dealing with it. And this is another section where we begin to, to see. Remember that we continue to deal with the real Jesus. Jesus has been focusing over these first two chapters on the message of the gospel, the coming of the kingdom of God, and that humanity is chock full of sinfulness, all of humanity. Not just some of humanity, all of it. And he's begun to reveal that he has the authority to forgive sin. No one else has that authority. Now the Pharisees have already confronted him and said, but nobody has the authority to forgive sin but God alone. And Jesus has openly said by his actions, God is among you. So we continue to look and see how this begins to be confronted by um, those who are hearing it. And this is what we see here in this this passage. I want us to look at the first point, the confining question. I'm trying to look and show you what's happening here. What what people want to do as the kingdom advances, they begin to want to try and put limits and, and put Parameters on what the kingdom can actually do, because they have a focus on what the kingdom should look like they've studied the Old Testament, they have an idea of what they're looking for in a Messiah, they have an idea of what they're looking for, and they want that to play out the way they understand it. and anything that seems to deviate outside of that, they begin to want to, want to deal with and confine. What we're going to see as we work through this passage is what Jesus is seeking to expose in them is the fact that this isn't just them trying to hold on to and make sure that people don't do weird things with, with God's word or do, do crazy things with the kingdom of God and its expectation. Jesus is really confronting them with a whole belief system they have, which is faulty and is leading them astray. So we're going to try and look and see how he does that and how they begin to play it out. The first thing is that confining question. The Pharisees' question is really about how serious Jesus is about holiness. And I want you to begin to see that this is how people often deal with the kingdom coming or the gospel being preached. They immediately begin to come and they look at a specific issue fasting, homeschooling, praying X number of times. Did you really pray the right prayer in order to be converted? You name the issues that people might come up with, but it always gets down to the issue. And what I want you to see is that that Jesus is in no way, shape, or form going to say anything negative about fasting. There's nothing wrong with fasting. There's nothing wrong with reading your Bible every day. There's nothing wrong with praying every day. In fact, I highly encourage you to do those things. Not necessarily fasting every day, because you'll die. (laughs) But reading your Bible and praying every day. But fasting is a good thing. But what we need to begin to realize is is there are things that that are necessary, and then there are things that are good and prudent and helpful for God's people. But what people generally tend to want to do is they want to elevate those things and to use those things and say, but here's how we really live holy. And you begin to understand how people can logically come to these conclusions, and we're going to work through that some too. But I want you to see that what they're really after is this. John's disciples fast. The Pharisees fast. Why don't your disciples fast? It seems like a fair enough question, right? Here's John. And, you know, John was this man who preached repentance, preached forgiveness, preached preparation preached all those things, and here are the Pharisees who are very serious about holiness, very serious about keeping covenant with God, very serious about the things of the Lord, at least from the outward appearance. And so why in the world would your disciples, Jesus, not fast? I mean, if you're really of God, shouldn't you be serious about holiness? You see the question that they're really baiting Jesus in on. Why aren't you doing these things that other people do? Well, there's several things I think we need to look at. Um, Reasons for fasting would be one. Sometimes people can do the same exact actions for completely different reasons. And oftentimes we tend to lump everything into one big, well, you know, they do this. But the real need is to then ascertain, well, why does this group do that and this group do that and this group do that? Why do they do that? Could it possibly be that they do the same thing for different reasons? Now I can think about one way you might look at this. You know, think about even in these elections that are going on. I mean, we all know some of, the, some of the shenanigans that people have been doing, crossing lines, voting for people, doing all these things, all voting for the same candidate, but for completely different reasons. They all have their own agendas. They all have their own reasons for doing what they're doing. The point is is that happens all the time, but oftentimes when it comes down to how we live our lives and how we think about it, oftentimes we want to live in a very black and white world. The problem is we don't. That's very frustrating to us. And we need to see that that, that there are reasons why people feel compelled then to try and put up hedges and parameters to try and deal with. One of these things has to do with fasting. Why in the world would John's disciples have been fasting at this time? What could be a possible reason they were doing it? Well, partly John was in prison. Is it possible that they were fasting before the Lord because they were praying that in fact John might be released? That John would in fact, the Lord would hear their prayers and hear their supplications. And it may be that they were fasting for that reason. It could be that because John had taken on a life of austerity living out in the wilderness, it's possible that his disciples began to kind of up the ante some. You know, I mean, John only ate honey and locusts and drank water. Well, we won't eat really take seriously. I mean, we know ultimately that when we get to the book of Acts, there are people who continue to follow John and not Jesus, and they have to be confronted and said, well, yeah, you've got the baptism of John, but have you had the baptism of the Spirit, which only comes from faith and belief in Jesus Christ? So we recognize that there are a variety of circumstances that could be going on with why John's disciples are fasting at this time. The Pharisees, we know, were fasting because they believed that this was part of the way that they kept covenant with God. They were staying and keeping the covenant. At least that's what they saw it as. It wasn't so much that God had specifically commanded that in and of itself. It was rather that they began to extrapolate, well, if God said this and this and this and this and this, then we want to put a hedge around the law to make sure we obey it. So, you know, there's all these other implications outside of what God clearly had said that they were trying to make sure that they kept covenant. Now, again, I want to come back and say we need to look and understand why they might have wanted to do that. Remember, because Israel had fallen into idolatry, because they had not taken God at his word seriously, they had been taken into captivity and they, under Babylon. And they here again find themselves under Roman captivity. So the Pharisees are very serious believing that if people will just listen to them and do the things they're calling them to do, that revival would break out and God would set Israel free. If you stay in the hedge, God will set Israel free. Does this sound familiar at all to us? Do we hear this kind of language today? If the church would just, if God's people would just do this or this, if we could just get everybody to have their worship services fit into this paradigm, if everybody would just, this is not something that's that far removed from how we tend to think. And Jesus begins to bust in on their worldview. In fact, he already has started to do that, and it's troubling them. They are bothered. Now please don't hear me saying that there aren't things that God has clearly called us to do and we ought to take those things seriously. But we have to keep them in perspective to what the big picture of the kingdom and how the Lord is advancing and what is necessary, what is required, what must happen, what is God really up to. If you would turn in your Bibles to Leviticus, I want us to look at the only place in the Old Testament where God clearly commands people to fast. And in the in what many of you have, the English Standard Version, it doesn't even say fasting. It actually uses the term afflicting. And so, but it is actually the word that in other translations you'll see fasting. This is where the Lord commands Israel to fast. Leviticus 16, and for those of you that don't know, Leviticus is a book all about God's holiness. It's about God saying, you must understand that I am a holy God and you must be a holy people. Very serious about holiness. And here's what the Lord then says, beginning in verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves or you shall fast and shall do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict or fast. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Now, what I want you to see here is, is that do you read in that how serious God is about holiness? Did you read about all the things they have to do. It's a fast. It's a do-nothing at all on that day. It's All these things need to be cleansed. All these impurities have to be dealt with. Sinfulness and contamination of all the holy articles has to be dealt with. I want you to see how serious this is talking about dealing with sin and the need for holiness to be maintained because God cannot dwell among a sinful People. And so he is making this provision of a day of atonement and has told the people to fast, to afflict themselves. Now, see that and understand that that's the backdrop, and understand now that the Pharisees have extrapolated out from that to fasting twice a week. I mean, we've got to really be serious about staying clean not being defiled. And we're going to come back to that because is that really what God is trying to teach them in that passage? Is that really what the Day of Atonement is about? But hold on to that. And let's look and see then what Jesus begins to do here. The challenging answers. Look at what Jesus now comes back and says to them. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now remember this, going back to John. John's disciples were fasting, but remember, John's already told them, I must decrease that he might increase. Who is that one that needs to increase? Well, Jesus. Jesus now says, look, the bridegroom has shown up. What happens at wedding parties? I I don't know about you. The only reason why I know anyone's fasting during a wedding is because the bride has been hurling her guts out before the wedding because she's so nervous. That's the only time I hear. And that's not because she chooses to fast. It's because basically her nerves have afflicted a fast on her. But normally, and especially among the guys, the idea of fasting is the furthest thing from their mind a day of celebration it's a day of party and festivity it's a day of fulfillment and satisfaction that's what a wedding is supposed to point to that's what the bridal party is supposed to be thinking about you see how jesus begins to point them and say if the bridegroom is among them why would they fast that would make no sense now, it may be that what Jesus is, is pointing to is, is not just the sense of making an analogy of a bridal party, but it is the reality that He is the true bridegroom. And where God had basically promised that He would come and redeem His people and would make a new covenant with them and unite Himself to His people in marriage, in covenant. Jesus is saying, the bridegroom is now among you. The hoped-for one is here. And so that's lingering there, but then listen to what he says, this, this kind of ominous statement. It may not seem ominous at the beginning, but let's see if we can understand that. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now that word taken away means not he's just kind of removed in the sense that you know he he walks away that taken away means exactly what it's saying there will be a day when he is forcibly removed and then his disciples will fast and what I want us, to, want us to notice is that what Jesus really is predicting is, is the reality of what I'm saying to you and the reality of who I am standing here and because of the fact that it is conflicting with your attempt to confine the kingdom and its parameters is going to lead to a crisis of which the bridegroom is going to be taken away, is going to be killed, is going to be crucified. You see... The desire to have the kingdom not be changed, the desire to not have things meddled with is going to come to such a critical mass that Jesus is going to be killed for it. That's where this is headed. And we need to see that we are not that different from the Pharisees, that we don't like things meddling and messing with our paradigms. We need to understand that these challenging questions come at us as well. How are we thinking about the kingdom? How are we thinking about who Jesus is? And how he instructs and confronts us in our own lives. Jesus then brings up this next section which really begins to confront the Pharisees' notion of holiness and the Pharisees' notion of the kingdom. And he says this, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. What Jesus is really saying is, you cannot take the gospel that I'm preaching or or the things that I am doing and say, well, there might be some things that people are hearing from you and we're going to kind of patch up, if you will, The things we've been doing. Jesus says, no, if you try to use the kingdom, if you try and use the gospel as a patch, it's like putting a new piece of cloth on an old garment. All that will happen is, is as that new piece begins to go through its normal process of developing, it's going to shrink and it's going to rip The old away. And then he makes the same analogy with the wine, right? You can't take new wine and pour it into the old wineskins, the old forms that you are living underneath. You cannot do that because what will happen to it? It will explode. It's going to completely eradicate anything you think you understand. The paradigm is blowing out you have a very small, narrow, confined view of how God works and how God operates. And the the message of the kingdom, the Gospel, is exploding just like new wine poured into an old wineskin would. You cannot... Do that You must pour it into new wine skins so that it develops and ferments and, and becomes the great wine of the kingdom, the promised wine of the new age. The idea here is, is that Jesus is basically saying, Pharisees, your paradigm cannot stand alongside of the gospel. Your paradigm must change. Your viewpoint must be transformed. Here's the last thing I want us to look at then in this whole matter. Why all the concern over such matters? Why are the Pharisees and why is this group of people asking these questions? Well, I've already begun to tease you into it and saying the answer is the Pharisees believed that God would keep covenant with them if they kept the law and stayed within the confines of their man-made heads. They really believed that. They really understood that if, if everyone would just do these things fast, pray, give, do all these things, that what would happen is, is there would be a great revival, and that God would send the Messiah, and he would overthrow the Roman Empire, and things would get good. The problem is, is that this view ultimately betrayed several things that they failed to understand. One of them was an understanding of sin. See, this view, this view of religion enabled its adherents to actually accomplish it. Do you understand that? That's why the hedge was there. They created the hedge to say, did I keep the law? Yes, they kept the law. See, they could obey it. They could stay in covenant with God because they had worked out a system to where if you only walk so many steps, if you fasted twice a week, if you did this and you did that and you did the other, then you were good with God. But you see what that ultimately begins to do? It begins to diminish sin and begins to make people believe somehow that part of what they're doing helps them either gain their salvation or maintain their salvation, neither of which is true. It's a false hope. It is a false religion. And Jesus is confronting them with this notion of they are not really keeping covenant with God at all. All their works, all their deeds, ultimately make them at odds with God. And how do we know this? Because they're at odds with Jesus, who is God, right in front of them. And they are at odds with Him. And He is trying to confront them and show them that what they're really after is assurance. That's the third point. Why would someone do this? The need for assurance. Why do we do the things we do? We want to have assurance that God is going to keep His promises. We want to have assurance that somehow we won't find ourselves empty-handed at the end of the age. And it's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. Look, the people of God keep going astray. They keep doing foolish things. We've got to come up with a system that keeps us from getting out of covenant with God. But don't you see what really is going on here? What Jesus is really trying to expose in them? What Leviticus 16 is trying to expose in us? Why was there atonement made every year? Because people are sinful and they constantly sin. The point was to say if you just could somehow figure out how to be more holy, more devout, more, 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 more. If you could just figure out all the rules and regulations and somehow keep yourself from being stained, then you wouldn't have any problems. The point is you can't do that. And neither could they. That was the whole reason for the Day of Atonement. The whole reason to fast was to make yourself aware of your desperate need for God to step in and save you. You could not save yourself. You cannot save yourself. You see how that begins to play on us when it comes to assurance. See, don't you see, everyone in this room, if you're a true follower of Christ, has struggled at some point with the issue of assurance. Gee, I've done all this stuff. I've been a Christian for 20 years and I did this. Am I sure that God really does like lo- Am I sure that I'm really a Christian? Could Christian people possibly do Terrible, wicked things. And the answer is yes, they can. Should they know? Should they hate it? Yes. Should they strive with all their might to put it away from them? Absolutely. But the only means of being in the fight is to recognize that dealing with sin is something that God alone has to deal with. You cannot defeat sin by yourself. You can't stop it. You can't put it away from you. All your stuff that you keep doing or trying to do or trying to put in place only makes your sin worse. Do you understand that? Sometimes it's actually our good deeds that keep us away from God's love. Because our hope is in them and not in Him. What Jesus is really drawing them to realize is this that you have to trust God alone. And I want you to understand, men and women, that is the hardest thing any human being ever does, is to trust God alone. That in reality, that my finances, that my insurance needs, that my health needs, that all these things that we hear in the body politics saying if the government could just do this or if this particular individual could just do this or if these things don't you understand men and women that all of that ultimately rests in God's hands and that what we tend to do is we tend to turn both in our view of salvation but in our view of everyday life towards false gods to somehow hold us up and bolster us up. And Jesus stands in and says, you cannot have anything else before Me. Nothing. Nothing else will do. Nothing else can deal with sin and all its consequences. No one else can truly heal you but Christ alone. No one else can truly save you but Christ alone. It's Christ and Christ alone. We need to understand that. We need to believe that. We need to continuously face the idolatry of our hearts and our own clamoring for assurance. I just want to know for sure. And Jesus says, then trust me. Because all who come to me, I will no wise turn them away. No one who comes to Jesus and puts His hope in Him alone is turned away. And that's what Jesus is ultimately confronting these folks with. You can't make yourself holy. You can't make yourself acceptable to God. You can't get yourself assurance. It only comes from God alone in the person and work of Jesus. Because He obeyed perfectly. He died the death that all sin deserves. He did everything necessary and therefore He is the only one who can give us hope and assurance that salvation is ours. So, as we conclude, are we willing this morning to confess that we put our hope in false things? Are we going to play the role of the Pharisees and say, I'm so glad that I don't believe what they believe, but I believe that we ought to put our faith in Christ alone. I'm so grateful that I go to a church, not like some others do, but I'm so grateful that we go to a church where the gospel is preached like this. Are we going to recognize that Jesus exposes us all the time, that we put our hope in false things? and not Him. It's Jesus. He bids us come and call upon Him and Him alone. Now we can be thankful. I am thankful that God has graciously allowed me to see myself, that I often look to other things instead of Him. I am so thankful that I get to preach a gospel which confronts me and confronts you I am so thankful that I have friends who preach this same Gospel. And that there are men and women who gather in these churches to hear it and believe it and put their faith in Christ who is the focal point of the Gospel. But that's not my hope. My hope is Jesus. My hope is Jesus. Because this pulpit could be taken away. This church could be taken away. Some of my dear friends in this room could be taken away. I could be taken away. And that would change nothing as far as our hope and our assurance. Because it's in Jesus. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.